Welcome to the William & Mary Environmental Law and Policy Reviews 2021 Symposium Podcast, Sustainability in the City. In this episode, you will hear a recording of Innovation in the Cityscape, in which our panelists will discuss the hurdles cities face in becoming sustainable. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to our first panel, Innovation in the Cityscape. My name is Claire Gardner and I will serve as your moderator for this panel. This morning we will be joined by Dr. Tim Beatley and Director J.D. Brown, who we just heard from. Additionally, Lynn Strobel, a lawyer at Walsh, Colucci, Lubelai, and Walsh, and an alumna of William & Mary Law School, will join us to provide her takes and share her experience. Finally, we will hear from Joe Romero, an attorney at Van Deventer Black, concentrating on environmental law within the firm's construction and government contract practice groups. If you have any questions for one of our panelists, feel free to put it in the chat. Let's get started. Our first question is what is the biggest hurdle in making a city sustainable and how can cities overcome that hurdle? Um, I'll go ahead and jump in, I guess, and just talk a little bit about the intuitively what everybody's gonna think of and which is cost. And you know, the, the question will be, does incorporating sustainable design increase the cost of construction. And I would say that most sustainable building at this point is almost um, acknowledged by architects and incorporated into buildings. Um, but I think that the ways to overcome that would be, you know, incentives uh, to uh, provide sustainable design. I'll give a couple of examples in my work primarily is with the development community in the Northern Virginia area, primarily Fairfax County and some of the surrounding jurisdictions. So I know, for example, in, in Fairfax County, that has been helpful is that the county zoning regulations certainly have parking requirements for shopping centers. So what they have done is that for electric vehicle charging stations, they don't count those against your parking requirement. So it's little things like that um, and you know, maybe some bigger things that if you are striving for LEED silver certification instead of just LEED, you don't have to post certain building escrows, which is kind of a bigger incentive. So I think that the biggest hurdle is probably cost, but I think that localities are trying to do what they can in big ways and, and smaller ways uh, to try to offset that and encourage it. I, I might just add, add to that. I, I think that's a that's very true, and and we have a lot of stories, a lot of examples of cities that are providing you know fifty percent of the cost of installing a, a green roof or a green wall. That's something Singapore does, for example. But I'm also a big fan of codes, and uh, codes we can we can craft mandates and codes in ways that give uh, developers flexibility. So JD, you mentioned the green factor. Uh, code, the green factor idea, which is uh, something a number of cities are using. So we, we make you reach a certain level, but we give you lots of flexibility in how you can, in the things you do uh, to reach that, that numeric level or requirement. I think even simple things, I, I agree with you. And I think that if, if jurisdictions could look at their ordinances and, you know, one thing is if you can provide additional building height you know, that gives you opportunities to provide additional green space. Um, so, I mean, I think you're right. I think through Fairfax County has policies in their comprehensive plan 
which they they do enforce. But I think taking it to the next level of trying to incorporate things that puts everybody on a level playing field uh, for ordinances, I think would be a good step as well. I'll jump in a little bit. I want to uh, launch off of that. Uh, one of the considerations with regard to sustainability is um, what is sustainable is certainly not a universal. Uh, and so what is sustainable in one community is not, is not necessarily going to be um, uh, sustainable or implementable, I guess, uh, it, depending on where you are. So I'll, we were talking just prior to the panel uh, some of the challenges uh, where uh, I have my practice here in, in Norfolk and Virginia Beach, and there is a uh, going to be a natural tension between sustainability and other considerations that have to be balanced against that. So, for example, one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face in this area in the coming decades because of climate change and sea level rise uh, is resiliency. And certainly uh, there's uh, there's overlap between sustainability practices and resiliency practices, but sometimes there aren't, and they can be in tension. And, and for example, uh, in places where you have a lot of uh, pre-existing development, for example, Norfolk, you have uh, a lot of, uh, Norfolk's a, a very developed city. It's got a lot of existing infrastructure. You simply can't move it. Uh, and so that may require development or design considerations that enhance resiliency that unfortunately may come at the expense of uh, the larger concept of sustainability. Certainly you can build a building that incorporates sustainable uh, construction practices, sustainable construction materials, uh, but the, uh, the other aspect of sustainability, which is the impact of that facility or that structure on the environment and the long-term need to sustain that building through uh, electrical power, uh, air conditioning, uh, may have to be sacrificed in order to make it a more resilient structure. For example, uh, armoring its its facade or its waterfront to protect against sea level rise, um, or dealing with, uh, so for example, in this area, uh, Virginia Beach has a 20% increase in precipitation over the last several years and, and projected forward because of the, the warming climate uh, and so having to build a more robust stormwater system to address that increased precipitation may come at the cost of sustainability. So I think those are one of the, or some of the biggest challenges municipalities are facing is having to balance against other considerations in addition to sustainability. Certainly there are situations where you can, they complement one another. Uh, and, and you hope as we move forward and technology improves with regard to construction design um, that, uh, you, you can have that marriage uh, more often, but sometimes, unfortunately, it's a bit of a challenge to incorporate both factors or, or numerous factors that the city has to weigh a balance against. You know, uh, continuing on that, you know, the, the, so the, the resiliency quotient that uh, the city of Norfolk has, I think is a really interesting example of um, kind of, you know, one of the hurdles is how do, how do our legal frameworks kind of change our differing focus what our differing objectives as we kind of think more about sustainability and incorporating it. And this is a quotient that, you know, is achieving that resiliency objective and then provides, you know, a variety of different ways for the, the, the developer, the private owner to accomplish that quotient. And one of them is incorporating kind of these, these nature-based aspects. Um, 
which you know Tim and I are particularly enthusiastic about, uh, in part because we feel like it it meets that goal of sustainability, but also uh, is a structure that's bringing in other aspects, um, you know, and can be very cost efficient. Um, but you know, the the resiliency quotient in particular. I think is really interesting kind of, you know, answering a question of how do we start to change our focus and kind of shift that decision making a little bit by bringing in some of these new considerations. So you mentioned cost and codes and resiliency. I would like to know to what degree aesthetics play a role in inhibiting cities from implementing sustainable infrastructure. So I think that's that's a really interesting question, and, it, and it's something that we have encountered with biophilic cities. So you know, to the extent um, that we are talking about um, areas where we want to incorporate nature, especially when we're talking about kind of conserving large intact areas in cities, um, and at the same time, you know, there's this need to start to bring in uh, more sustainable forms of of energy, alternative energy. So putting a wind turbine into a, a river valley, you know, creates a conflict because it's, 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 it's searching for that goal of sustainability and bringing in energy, but it's also contrary to that uh, larger conservation um, goal. So it's, it's definitely a balance. Um, and, you know, I, I think putting them on uh, both in the conversation, I think, becomes part of that, you know, how you achieve that. So I think that goes a little bit to kind of what Joe was saying. Um, it's hard to do everything. Um, but yes, I, I, I do think, you know, not often, but sometimes there's there's that conflict. Yeah. And I, I might just, oh, sorry, ch chime in about from, from the, as a representative of, of a school of architecture where there's a lot of thinking about uh, design. And, um, and, and I think part of the challenge is to reimagine what a, what a building could look like. And so we know with bird-friendly design, for, for example, we've been, we've been sort of wedded in the design world to this idea of a big glass box, right? Uh, kind of modern structure. And uh, it's very, it's historically been very energy intensive and carbon intensive and not a good thing for lots of reasons and not very good for birds, uh, very dangerous for birds. So we've seen the emergence of a whole new aesthetic um, around bird-friendly design, which um, is more about thinking about a creative facade that birds can see, but it's really more interesting and in, in, in visually, uh, you know, complex and, and delightful. Um, so I think we can, we can begin to move those aesthetics in, in, in the direction of biophilia and sustainability. The only thing I, I would add, and it's, it's interesting, I just want to pick up on the comment about a, a wind turbine. And, you know, Fairfax is a fairly urban environment, so you don't really see that, except there was, there has been an approval uh, for an automobile dealership uh, to ensure that it, it maintained a, a carbon neutral footprint uh, that did propose and did construct kind of a, a wind turbine. And honestly, mixed results. I mean, people are not used to seeing that and uh, there has been pushback on it. I would also note that in some of the further out counties in Culpeper, uh, there was a, a solar panel uh, facility that was approved and then the, they did not implement it in a sufficient period of time, political winds changed and there was serious doubt about whether it would be reapproved by the new council because uh, again, people are concerned about the aesthetic of solar panels. So I really do think it, it has, 
there's a push-pull there between people wanting sustainability and embracing that, but you know, this concern about the aesthetic. So. Uh, one of the challenges that uh, our clients often face is particularly in a, a, a municipality like Norfolk that has a lot of uh, pre-existing structures. The city of Norfolk itself is a fairly old city, you know, was, uh, and, and many of the buildings are from the early 19th century. And so you have a number of historical preservation considerations. Uh, so um, you don't see as much, you, you do see some new development. And uh, I think with regard to the first premise of your question with aesthetics, uh, you certainly have seen a, a dramatic improvement in the ability to incorporate uh, sustainable practices that uh, also are aesthetically pleasing to the, facility, the building itself, because there's just been, a, a, over the last 10 years, a nice uh, or an increase in the availability of uh, products that help facilitate that. I mean, you know, a lot of people don't think about something, I'm sure the design professionals do, because they have to, they have to, uh, uh, specify what's required when you build a facility, but something as simple as what kind of roofing material you're gonna use, uh, the type of caulk you're gonna use or sealants on the windows to help improve thermal efficiency on the building, which reduces your HVAC costs and makes the building more sustainable. Those type of products were initially extraordinarily expensive. The price is coming down uh, along with availability. So it, it's becoming more of an attractive option to help uh, develop a facility that is, uh, as Lynn said, you know, lead cert not just LEED certified, but LEED certified. At, at a more advanced level. But when you have a building uh, in Norfolk that was built in 1825 or 18, whatever the case may be, uh, you have uh, certain both state and federal uh, statutes that uh, uh, encourage and sometimes mandate that the uh, aesthetic of the building be preserved. And even to the point where um, you have to use a certain type of glass, for example, in the windows in order to preserve its historical aesthetic. So I think that's, a, that's going to be a challenge for some of our older municipalities, uh, particularly in the cores of those municipalities like Norfolk. Virginia Beach doesn't have as much of a challenge with that because it's, you know, the oldest, some of the oldest portions of, the, of, the, of Virginia Beach are actually the waterfront um, and much of the original infrastructure doesn't really exist anymore. It's a lot of hotel development, et cetera. But Norfolk has quite a number of old uh, historic and quite beautiful old buildings uh, that it'll be a challenge to incorporate sustainability designs and technologies into those older buildings. The, the technology is better. There's no question about it. And as the, uh, the need to upgrade the building comes uh, due, for example, updating its HVAC system or windows, uh, the technology has gotten better at incorporating uh, historical aesthetic into those structures. You know, what, uh, Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead, JD. No, you go ahead. <laughs> okay, I was just going to say really, really quickly. You know, Tim and I touched a little bit on the kind of presentation that we had uh, prior to our, our our discussion here, which is, you know, what's the difference between the green city, the climate mm. uh, adapted city, mm. and for us, you know, the kind of the biophilic notion, the notion of how do we integrate nature, talks a little bit about, you know, how do we create the places that we want to live. So. We need sustainability. There's an imperative to address climate mitigation and adaptation, but you know, how do we also create cities that are not sterile, that are, are, are cities that we wanna go for a walk and be outside yeah. in? And so when we think about the solutions, um, how, how can we yeah. create both of those things? So. Yeah, that's great. And I, just to build on that, I, a couple of quick 
thoughts. Uh, one is I wonder, we are all kind of wondering what will the pandemic uh, mean in ter terms of cha our changing aesthetic about nature or changing importance in our minds about nature. And so our partner city, city state uh, Singapore went through a interesting period, two, a two month lockdown. They weren't expecting it. And uh, as a result, they weren't able, National Parks Board in parks uh, usually maintains the vegetation, cuts the grass, does all of that. And they weren't able to do it. And so the, the city became a little bit wilder, a little bit more woolly, and uh, set in motion a whole uh, discussion there about what, they, what kind of nature they wanted. And it turns out people liked it. And they want the butterflies and the birds and all the other things that go along with this more wild uh, sort of place. And um, that's happening in other cities, of course. And uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe the pandemic, if there's any silver lining, it may be that you know we we're reappreciating we're appreciating a wilder the virtues of a wilder city. I want to circle back to something that Joe brought up uh, in terms of technologies. What recent technologies or reimagining of existing technologies um, are offering the opportunity to make cities more sustainable right now? Well, I guess I, I, I guess I'll jump in since you called me out by name. <laughs> uh, so we come at, I come at it from a, a sort of a, 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 I don't want to say ground level, but from the perspective of the construction who's going to be building this the facility uh, and and I'll certainly defer to the other panelists on sort of the higher level levels of technology that go into the larger design of the facility uh, I think what you're seeing is a lot of the just day-to-day -day products that go to into building a building um, uh, have now are now incorporating sustainable uh, or sustainability um, designs or or, or capabilities and are available or more available. They're still probably on the, as I noted, it's much easier for a uh, design professional construction company to incorporate sort of the, the mundane aspects to, or, or features to a building that even just 10 years ago would have been much, much more challenging and, and exceedingly more expensive. Uh, the type of windows, the reflective nature of the windows, the the sealants you're using, the roofing material, the HVAC technology, um, uh, the ability to incorporate, you know, solar's more efficient these days. So the ability to, in, uh, to incorporate uh, solar into a design of a building within the footprint of that facility, as opposed in, in, you know, in just 10 years past, you might not be able to have uh, sustained a building or at least a large portion of it with the solar voltaic uh, capacity that was available. Now you might be able to. Uh, with the existing uh, and even retrofitting a lot of buildings. You see that actually one of the organizations that was very aggressive with that was uh, uh, the military services where uh, you have these large pre-existing infrastructures near municipal centers like here in Norfolk, you have the Naval Station and they have a lot of open space and a lot of flat surfaces, flat roofs and they were able to incorporate uh, solar power even uh, on parking structure uh, roofs. Uh, and they were generating sufficient energy to actually uh, have energy flow back into the grid uh, from so those facilities, depending on uh, the time of day and the time of year. So just the, uh, I, I, we've seen a significant improvement in the availability and cost of just your run of the mill everyday construction materials that makes 
incorporation of a sustainable design more palatable and to Lynn's point, more cost effective. It might still be more expensive, but now you're able to recoup those costs in a sooner, uh, in, in, a, in a, a more compressed time period. I guess I, I just would like to add to that because one thing that we really haven't talked about that there have been, it has been a constant evolution is stormwater management. I think that's another important part of what we deal with um, in environmental policy. And, you know, it started just a very long time ago when Fairfax County declared a water supply protection overlay district in the western part of the county because it drained to the Occoquan Reservoir, which is the county's drinking supply. And so that um, developed standards for what they called best management practices or BMPs. And I think it's so interesting to see how technology has evolved and thinking has evolved, evolved over the last, say, 20 years when it used to be that what best management practices meant was putting the water into a, a stormwater management pond, you know, and holding that and releasing it slowly. What you see now is all about, um, you know, infiltration and natural opportunities to mitigate stormwater management. So, you know, what you're finding are infiltration trenches. Uh, there are still underground facilities, but you know, you always, if you're driving in a neighborhood, you kind of tell how old it is because it's got a big stormwater management dry pond that fills up when it rains, uh, where there are definitely been so many strides towards a more natural way to mitigate stormwater management. So, and again, those practices become more routine and also more cost effective over time, which uh, I think is good for at least my clients. And it also does help the aesthetic. I will say that too. Um, and, and of course, incorporating native vegetation is certainly also a part of that practice. So I'll, I'll just add that as a discussion topic too. Yeah. I, I just might add the, the whole area of di digital technology and um, you know, we're, a lot of attention right now being paid to this, this vision of cities, smart, smart cities, connected, digitally connected, internet connected sort of cities. And many of us in the biophilic community have um, for many years have gotten used to thinking about um, smartphones, iPhones, all the, all the sort of screens and technology that we depend on as being distractions um, and working against our connections with nature, but increasingly we're recognizing that they can be allies and this technology can help to connect us to the natural world. That phone can alert you to when you're sitting too long and, and can help you find uh, where the nearest park is. And there are all, all kinds of powerful things there. And even more broadly, the vision of a smart city as a biophilic city could be that there are a lot of things that we're doing to grow nature, to support biodiversity, uh, through censoring and through kind of digital information exchange. And so, Joe, I know, you know, they're, they've been installing um, flood, street-specific flood sensors, for, for instance, in Norfolk. Uh, so, you know, you know, you can get in real time where you need to evacuate, what streets you want to avoid and, and that sort of thing. Um, and we have a colleague who's talking now, who's been writing and talking about the, what she calls the Internet of Nature. So that green roof could be connected to um, an information center so, so that we know it, when the moisture levels dip down, you know, it could say, tell us, water, water us, or do something else to, to sustain that, that green element. 
you know, in terms of the kind of the law and economic aspects of it, you know, so it's, it's creating the markets for these technologies to become cost effective. So, you know, there's the standards like living building and lead. And one of the really big things that uh, Living Futures does, which is the living building standard folks, um, is to work with those companies who are building the innovative technology to incorporate them into their standards so that there becomes a market for them. And I think cities can also do that, um, you know, through the provisions that they are adopting. If they want certain results, that helps create the market um, because that's that's a cost that exists. And it, it, you know, what's the most effective way to accomplish that? Um, and you know, once that market exists, you know, we'll see more of that happen. Um, in Washington D.C., they've tried to facilitate that by creating a credit system for their stormwater capture requirement. So Washington D.C. says, you know, new development has to capture a certain percent. We want you to be using green infrastructure, but if you go above and beyond what we are asking for in the regulation, you're going to get a benefit for that. You get a credit that you can trade on the market to others who are not able to meet that threshold. And so now you're, you're facilitating that, that work and creating value, I think, for, for, for those that are, are, are trying to move these ideas forward. That's a great point, because when you have the ability to create a defined market uh, for these type of uh, development credits, um, it really can be effective. Uh, and so you, you see that, for example, with the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, the Nutrient Credit Program that's been in place now for many years. Uh, and it's pretty effective uh, where um, a lot of agricultural and farming uh, industries or, or, or farmers or businesses have generated, uh, are able to generate nutrient credits that they are then able to, to pass along at profit to um, developers. And so, or, or as JD said, for you know individuals that just simply can't meet it for whatever reason, uh, so there's no reason why we can't implement that sort of uh, system as well, uh, because you have, particularly in urban areas, you have defined development areas that you can uh, use to generate a market for those type of you know, stormwater credits, uh, development credits. And Norfolk is, is actually very aggressive with that in many of its development ordinances with regard to, for example, uh, development, uh, uh, trading development rights from low-lying parcels to more uh, to parcels that are on higher ground in order to make a more resilient and sustainable building. So, so I think that's, that's a, uh, for purposes of building sustainability and, and stormwater management, I think there's a great untapped uh, potential there as well. So I wholeheartedly agree with Lynn and JD on that. Okay, we can move on to the next topic. Um, who stands to benefit from a sustainable city and in what way, and who stands to lose? So I'll jump in there. I, I don't know if win or lose is quite, it's not necessarily a zero sum game, but one thing, one particularly, this is a very sensitive topic in Norfolk because you have some very old communities that have been here for quite some time. And it's not limited to Norfolk. Of course, you see this, you see it a lot in Northern Virginia as well, and that's gentrification uh, and where you have um, uh, attempts to redevelop either blighted areas, underserved areas, uh, economically depressed areas. Uh, historically, those efforts uh, have resulted in gentrification of those areas and uh, uh, underserved populations have been essentially pushed out. Uh, and so you, um, 
you, you've seen that to some degree. Uh, you see that throughout the, a lot of the older urban areas. And one of the concerns with sustainable design um, that we touched on earlier in this presentation is uh, presentation was cost. And the concern with sustainable uh, development is if you create a sustainable development that is markedly more expensive than a traditional facility, traditional building, then what you create is a, uh, I don't know, I'll call it a sustainability class, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, a, a, a group of individuals or, or a part of the population that can afford uh, to uh, buy into that facility, whether it's a residential facility, whatever the case may be, because the developer is looking to get a return on their development costs as quickly as possible. I mean, that generally these projects are very heavily leveraged. Um, and so uh, they need to recoup uh, the, the cost pretty quickly after the development is complete. Uh, I think that uh, concern has been mitigated, uh, one, because there's a real recognition that gentrification is a problem uh, and, we, and uh, municipalities are much more sensitive to today than they were even just 10 years ago. And two, as we touched on earlier, uh, there's less of a tension between cost and sustainable design than there used to be. The cost for a lot of these technologies has come down uh, the ability to incorporate them uh, is more uh, is more available. Uh, and something Lynn, Lynn touched on, when we think about sustainability, we shouldn't, and, and everybody else touched on it with biophilic cities, sustain, you know, a lot of people, when they think of sustainable construction, sustainable design, they think of just the building itself and not just the surrounding area. And so when you create, you know, you have a parcel that you're developing, it's almost standard now to develop a parcel with, for example, not, um, uh, uh, Sorry, I just blanked out. Uh, um, permeable surface or non-permeable surfaces. So, uh, so that's one of the considerations that I think is important. Uh, so that individuals that live in established portions of municipalities that uh, are underserved or or have economic challenges, whether they are going to be able to reap the benefits of future sustainable development. I'd like to add to that, and and I think Joe is absolutely right about you know what's happening with the cost of housing, uh, just, you know, in the area that I live in, but I think also in, in many areas, the cost of housing, you know, is going up. And so you've got a real affordability gap. Um, but, you know, development and is not just commercial buildings, you know, like office buildings and residential. I think that you have to think about the city as really a diverse mix of uses. So, the folks that I'm concerned about are that might suffer some unintended consequences of the cost of sustainable design are the nonprofits. And I'm speaking of places of worship, um, private schools, and affordable housing developers. And I think that those are all part of the fabric of the community, but they're also going to face increased costs potentially from incorporation of sustainable design. And the one thing I will say that has been helpful, at least in, in the jurisdiction I work in the most in Fairfax County, is that when you're going through a process to get your local government approval, as a condition of approval, instead of requiring third-party certification, they will require just commitments to certain building design elements or building construction or building materials because it's really the third-party certification that overlays a lot of cost uh, onto uh, you know, development. And so I think that, that there really needs to be a recognition for this 
part of the community and ensuring that while they can be contributors, maybe there needs to be flexibility in holding them to certain standards that you might hold other you know, uh, developers of residential and commercial buildings. So I just wanted to, to add that because it's something I, I do a lot of work with nonprofits. Yeah, you know, uh, in the in the planning world, we refer to these as as wicked problems because they are so hard to address. Um, and and I think gentrification, you know, is not necessarily the challenge of it is not unique to sustainability. Uh, sustainability is kind of one other aspect, um, but I think also goes to when we try to put the responsibility solely on private development, you know, to answer these and incorporate these costs, you know, that that's not going to happen because that that there's the market doesn't exist, and you know that's where the you know our laws have to kind of incorporate that and make that realistic uh, in terms of incentives or or sharing that burden or making that the priority for how we invest um, as a city to be realistic about it. And I think it also speaks to, and to me, something that's very interesting that we see for biophilic cities is that there's not a one size fits all type solution. So a lot of it depends on kind of the market demand. So in cities where there is, you know, a high desirability and, and a really rich market you know, for um, there to be new development, asking developers to do something more above and beyond, you know, can be the cost of doing business. But when you are having a hard time attracting any development whatsoever, to ask them to do additional things is, is, is going to be difficult. And you're probably not going to attract the level of development that you're interested in. But I think the, the really the, the really important thing is, is that for us in biophilic cities, we're talking about parks, we're talking about trails, but we're talking about addressing just the fundamental ways that we address property and social and economic aspects and systems. So these are really complicated and much bigger than just the project itself. Um, you know, we always talk about, I think an excellent example in Washington DC again, is um, this 11th Street Bridge project you know, is, is, is looking to build a, an amenity that is bridging two sides of the river, two different types of communities. And it's trying to have a result that when they build this project, they're not gentrifying the other side of the river. And so the, the first few years of the project before anything has been built is to try to develop, um, you know, an equity economic toolkit that creates jobs, that creates opportunities for that community to stay there and benefit from the changing landscape. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a work in progress, but, um, you know, there's got to be innovation in that area um, as well. So. Um, but JD is absolutely right. I think it's probably the single biggest issue right now in our uh, community, in our Biophilic Cities uh, network. And it's this, this qu uh, question about the fair distribution of nature. And we know that in cities like Richmond that have um, had a long history of segregation and, and redlining, um, when you look at that city, uh, the places that have, um, you know, good tree canopy and, and low temperatures during summer, they're the white affluent neighborhoods and the neighborhoods of color uh, don't have that same, those same natural resources and the same connections to nature. 
And so how to correct that uh, becomes a real challenge. And, and Mayor LeVar Stoney there in R Richmond's done wonder, a wonderful job so far. They've just created five new parks um, in that city to help correct that imbalance. But at the same time, this problem of when we uh, sometimes call green gentrification or eco gentrification, when you invest in parks in neighborhoods, um, the High Line in New York is a great example, uh, you set in motion this displacement and, and uh, increased housing prices and so on. So, so JD's right, we, we have some, some emerging positive examples like the 11th Street Bridge Park in Washington, but not very many. We still need a more robust uh, set of tools, toolkit and, and policies to, to address, to, to, to advance that idea that everybody deserves nature, but not to, to set in motion these unintended consequences. Yeah, I was just going to echo, I think, what both of you all, all said is that you're right. It's not a one size fits all. I mean, it's just not. And I think that, you know, there's such a, you know, there's the local level, there's individual projects that gets expanded to a local level and that gets expanded to a regional level. And we really have to be looking at all of those levels and trying to determine, as you say, what's fair, what's equitable and trying to create opportunities for, for everyone. Could you discuss some more specific ways that we can incorporate sustainability into already existing infrastructure? Because I don't know who's going to hit that one first, but it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, I think that for existing infrastructure um, is difficult. And, and maybe Joe has some thoughts because of, of kind of what he works with. Um, but I think that the, the way to kind of work through that is developing the policies and the regulations. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the one example that I'll, I'll put out there again is that, uh, for example, for electric vehicle charging stations, you know, being able to incorporate those into existing shopping centers and not create a penalty with regard to, you know, taking away parking spaces, you know, it's a little thing, but it helps. And I, so I think that, you know, there are probably ways to try to work through those types of issues, but I think retrofitting is much more difficult than if you are, you know, creating a project. But I'm sure that others have, have different thoughts. Well, I was just going to, to add that we have a number of cities that have done really creative things in already existing neighborhoods. Um, and so, for example, in Portland, Oregon, more than 2,000 green streets. These are bioswales created out of existing roadways that add nature, add some element of nature to a neighborhood that needs it, but also uh, control stormwater or help to manage stormwater. Another example from um, Milwaukee, where they are taking vacant lots, uh, assembling them, putting them together and creating wonderful pocket parks. So it's a challenge and it's hard to do that kind of retrofitting, but on the other hand, it's a huge opportunity in many, in many places. And we're seeing that too, you know, there was the advent of, uh, you know, Tyson's Corner in Fairfax County has, has been designated as the urban core and that really primarily was the result of the extension of, in Washington, D.C., the metro, what they call the Silver Line, that takes the metro from Washington, D.C., out to Dallas Airport and beyond. And so what they have tried to do with the comprehensive plan in that area are just the, just the types of things that Tim was referring to, in that you're trying to incorporate a streetscape that includes, uh, you know, bioretention in the in the tree pits that are put in in the streetscape design it's requiring a certain amount of open space associated with 
new development and they're offering additional intensity because of the metro but layering on these you know requirements that i think are trying to reshape the um reshape the area and and kind of reshape the infrastructure that's there and it's everything from green roofs you have to take care of the first inch of rainfall on site uh, which is a big issue for stormwater management you're providing parks and urban open spaces um, so it's really trying to i call it kind of the great experiment because it's a the plan when it was adopted was envisioned to be at least a 50-year plan so you know we're, we're about 10, 10, 20 years in, we'll see how this evolves. Um, it won't be within my practice, but I'll be interested to see how all of this is incorporated into this new urban environment that has sustainability as one of its highest objectives. Where does the strongest push for sustainability come from? Is it um, local, regional, national? Is it from governments, NGOs, private citizens? What are you seeing? I mean, from my perspective, it's, of course, the local government, but that's who I'm working with. But, uh, you know, it's, it's local and, uh, you know, certainly a part of that is, is citizen driven. Um, and, you know, of course, the, the Board of Supervisors are elected, they're listening to their constituents, and they help frame the policies um, that are uh, provided for development. So, there, I mean, there are certain national, I would say that, you know, that does expand. For example, you have one of the older regulations, the Chesapeake Bay Preservation Ordinance, that was adopted, at least in Fairfax, in about 1990, I think. So, I mean, there are larger regional pushes, uh, but a lot of it's local. Yeah, I'm going to echo what Lynn said. As always, all politics are local. Uh, and so, uh, and that includes sustainable building, sustainability, just economic development generally. Certainly, there are uh, larger national trends that feed into that uh, concept or, or, or that help drive awareness or, uh, and, and raise sustainability considerations uh, to individual consciousness. But at the end of the day, it's really what comes down to what affects the locality, what affects the populace in that locality. Uh, and that's what's going to drive uh, local leaders in, in enacting the type of uh, legal framework that will drive sustainability designs or, or development in that locality. And that's why, you know, I think a, one of the larger themes in this entire panel is the tug, uh, the pull and tug uh, and, and sort of competing interests uh, that you see with regard to development. Uh, and this is no different. So the locality is probably best positioned to understand what are the local challenges uh, that sustainable design helps to solve. And so for example, uh, going back to something I touched on earlier, uh, Norfolk and Virginia Beach and the sort of the waterfront areas in the Hampton Roads area, uh, there's a, obviously a, a real awareness of the challenges that climate change is going to impose upon this area, sea level rise, precipitation increases, and, and that the current infrastructure is simply not there to address a lot of these challenges. So uh, as the municipality as Lynn said, you know, for example, the municipalities here have been much more aggressive with enforcing Chesapeake Bay ordin preservation ordinances uh, because there's a recognition that uh, those are sustainable designs that are already in place or can be put in place with new development that help to foster um, a sustainable economic growth. I mean, if you build a building or a development or a commercial center that's going to be underwater in 10 years, 
then you really hamstrung the, the local economy. Uh, so, so that's to echo Lynn's point that really a, a lot of these considerations are, are guidance is being provided at the national and, and certainly here at the state level, uh, but uh, the, the real push is going to come from the local level. Um, yeah. You know, uh, so obviously, you know, we are big proponents of cities being leaders, not just, you know, uh, as what's happening uh, in their cities, but also at the global level. You know, so in terms of kind of the proponents of this work, you know, obviously, you know, the conservation organizations, all of those that you would expect, you know, are proponents. But what may not be as apparent is the large economic forces that recognize climate adaptation mitigation must happen. It's going to happen. It's going to be a cost of business. And so when you look at these kind of world economic forums, you know, number one on their list is, is climate, is sustainability. You know, I think, you know, these big businesses, they are, they want, they know this is a cost. So addressing it up front so that it's a known cost and that that is good business instead of something that, you know, becomes a surprise, it becomes, you know, um, something that's harder to factor into uh, to that. Uh, so I, I, I think, you're going to see non-traditional proponents, thing, people that you wouldn't think are going to be leading at the, at the global level, but then that translates to what happens in cities. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a, a wide variety of audiences, I think. Yeah, and I just, I would echo that. Uh, so, so many um, in, entities and organizations that have an interest in this that should be, can be pushing uh, healthcare companies, for example, insurance companies um, and and we, we help to run a network of cities. I think cities will be amplifying their impact um, uh, through organizations like C40 and uh, resilient cities and other and other organizations. Um, I wanted to add to the local though I think I'm absolutely with you all on the importance of the local, realm, but uh, I think it's also useful to think about, uh, you mentioned NGOs, Claire, um, in, your, in your initial list. And I think there's a lot to be said for movement at the local level, action at the local level that's generated by um, grassroots kinds of things, activities, uh, citizens groups, NGOs of various kinds. And that's certainly one experience we've, we've seen. And, and just one small example from Arlington, was it last week or two weeks ago, the new Amazon um, second phase development of their second headquarters, this double helix, whatever you think about the aesthetics of, of that building, uh, very biophilic and, and um, partly a response to what Arlington County is telling them, but uh, also a response to what they were hearing from citizen groups. And there's a group of a small, very active uh, group around biophilic design. And they, so that building in a way reflects the sentiment of, of, the, of the community. Um, again, it gets us back into the aesthetics question, but uh, it's a really interesting building. Uh, so so if, if you have, you know, very active, robust um, organizations and grassroots things happening, that'll help to drive a lot of the sustainability agenda at the local level. 
What are some other ways to drum up local interest in making our cities more sustainable? And what are some things that we, the viewers, can do to sort of encourage our localities to um, take a more sustainable approach? No, I was going to say, I think it's all about getting involved, like you say, at the local level. At least that's what I see. And, uh, you know, getting involved with your local political representative, because there are all types of committees, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the to various committees. Uh, there's the, um, you know, there are, there are a whole host of environmental uh, committees. There's an environmental advisory committee. And I think all of those are opportunities for citizens to engage in that local process because these committees make recommendations, of course, to the board and the board, you know, potentially incorporates that into their policy. And that becomes something that, you know, reaches the, the whole jurisdiction. So I guess that that's what I would say is get involved on in those local committees through your board representative. Uh, I just quickly going to say bringing in, a, you know, create a larger tent, right? So, you know, who, who is going to support this? Tim mentioned health, you know, when we talk about just, I mean, that's a watershed. Uh, and we, if we think about access to nature, planning for nature and cities, you know, it, it, tremendous health benefits. So if we think about that as, as a, a source of preventative health in cities and some of the investment that we are putting in health and responding to emergencies and, and poor health, you know, that, that to me just creates a whole different um, audience to support this work. If you want to see true democracy in action, go to a local board. Uh, it, it, it's, it's one of the most fascinating uh, experiences you'll ever, you'll ever go through because uh, it, it, it's an encouraging site because generally what you see is uh, the board members truly do take into consideration the input that they receive from the public, but they only take into consideration the input they receive from the public uh, when they receive that input. And so I, I can't, I, I can't emphasize enough what Lynn said, which is most people simply aren't engaged. Um, and so if you are uh, interested in, in knowing what your government is doing at all levels, uh, then you need to become involved in that process. Something as simple as, for example, signing up, uh, Virginia has a, a very effective town hall uh, system where all public activity is posted uh, on the town hall website. So everything from proposed regulations, the issuance of new guidance, um, public meetings to discuss something as mundane as a technical guide. Well, sometimes those technical guides are incredibly important in driving how a project is going to be constructed or managed, uh, particularly when you're looking at, for example, public procurement contracts. So uh, getting involved, getting engaged, uh, participating in uh, local board activities uh, and even state board activities, such as uh, you know, a, a lot of environmental and sustainable uh, regulations are implemented by the Virginia uh, Maritime Re uh, VMRC, uh, com the commission. So participating in those public hearings and, and reading the proposed or draft regulations for guidance documents and then providing comment uh, is important because uh, the government officials that are responsible for implementing those programs really they take their jobs very seriously. They are dedicated servants to the public and they very much take into consideration the public's input. Uh, it's not just a formality. And I've seen, I have seen permits and I'm sure Lynn has as well, uh, just completely go sideways. Um, 
uh, even though the law doesn't really <laughs> support denial of the permit or 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 um, uh, or pushing the the application to the next meeting, simply because there was robust objection, even if that objection may not necessarily been well informed, it, they they take the input of the public very seriously. So, yes, get engaged. Uh, let the let the officials know what it is uh, that is important to you. And I will say that what we like to say in our office is that land use is like litigation, but without rules of evidence. So yes, you know, people can uh, become engaged and they can influence the process. Um, what I would also say is that we talked earlier about technology. And I think that we are lucky to be living in the age that we are because technology makes that engagement easier. I mean, I think you can easily go onto any jurisdiction's website and find out how to either contact your representative or find out what committee positions are available. And I will say, and I'm sure this is the same in many jurisdictions, but at least here locally, um, you know, the, the, the local governments have not missed a beat uh, during this pandemic. They are holding hearings by, uh, you know, electronic and, and uh, telephone. And I think that it's interesting because it has, to some degree, I think, actually facilitated community engagement because instead of having to drive out to your local government center to speak on something in person, you can call in and make your voice heard. You can call in from your couch. So, I mean, in some ways, I think it's actually facilitated that community engagement component. So, um, you know, there, there are opportunities out there. I just want to add, I agree, that's that's uh, wonderful advice. Uh, you need to, yeah, becoming engaged, show up, show up at meetings, write letters, volunteer, um, but uh, approach it, of course, from a, a kind of um, not a nimbyist point of view, right? It's, uh, it's the challenge is getting everyone to think about a larger public interest and not just about something that might affect you uh, individually. And that's the biggest challenge that's often why the permits go haywire, Joe, right? That it's uh, somebody's, uh, something's proposed next door that they don't like or they fear fear uh, will generate traffic or have some negative impact on their community. So, so we th I think we need to think about um, how we instill this sort of broader, larger, deeper sense of citizenship. Um, and, and for me, that means starting uh, with the nature around you. Uh, so, I would also say there's so many things that you could do just as a homeowner, uh, for example, I'm talking about bird, bird friendly gardens and native gardens and things that you can do around your house, talking to your, to your neighbors, learning common species of, of flora and fauna and becoming much more embedded in the place you live in and then sort of standing up for that nature when necessary at, at, at a public hearing. Actually, Tim, I want to touch on that a, a little bit. Uh, I think that's an exceptional point. Uh, it it kind of, I'm not sure it answers Claire's question directly, but it goes to, again, to the larger theme of the challenges uh, and, and the competing interests. Uh, we can call it NIMBY, but don't underestimate that power of local community. Um, sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's, unfortunately, a lack of understanding of what it is that's even being proposed even if it's a, a positive development uh, for the community. So uh, one way, and then circle back to how this addresses your question, Claire, one way to help push forward uh, sustainability 
uh, incorporation of sustainability uh, into community development is to understand what's actually happening and, and being part of an informed discussion uh, with regard to what is actually happening in the community. Because unfortunately, I think we've all seen it over the last several months, um, uh, along with the great gift of technology is the great curse of technology, which is the ability for everyone to be their own publisher uh, and the just unbelievable amounts of misinformation uh, that not only is broadcast, but is actually believed very easily. Um, so, uh, and especially when you are proposing, I think Linda on the head, when you are proposing something that is different or unique, such as a windmill or a photaic uh, array uh, in the community, that's not what has been there, especially with established communities, you're going to get an inherent pushback uh, from at least some of the community. So uh, to the extent you are involved in those projects, uh, aggressive and transparent community engagement is critical. If the developer or the company or even an NGO is seen, uh, and I've seen significant pushback against some, especially out of area NGOs that come into a community and they're seen as outsiders. Um, uh, if there's any sense that they are withholding information or have some ulterior motive, there's not any amount of information that you'll ever be able to put out. Uh, you've already lost that battle uh, uh, within the community. So um, just being mindful of that and helping to foster uh, a well-informed discussion is, is often critical in implementing what may seem like alien changes to a lot of, uh, a lot of communities. I think, and, and Joe's absolutely right, everything he said, and I think it's so important to be informed, you know, get the facts and, and understand them. And it, it is not just one group or individual's problem. It's something that everyone has to solve. Um, it's not just something that can be resolved by the development community. I mean, I, I love Tim's point. I mean, look at yourself and what you can do. And I think that that is so important. I just think the comments of Tim and Joe are absolutely spot on and um, hope that that continues to be a part of the discussion. Yeah, in terms of uh, kind of the community engagement, you know, I think it's also, you know, realistic to think that, you know, there, there's just a, a certain portion of the community that is not going to participate because of a history of distrust or, how they have interacted with the city in the past or just a, a sense of you know how things are going to go so there has to be that proactive aspect of understanding what that portion of the community um, is needs and is looking for um, and involving them otherwise you know you're, you're not going to have good results for your projects and i think a lot of that responsibility is is on the city and on the public uh, to, to get those voices understood and to, you know, increase that tent um, as well in that respect. Well, we are running on to the end of our time, but before we end, I want to go to each panelist quickly, if they could just say uh, one thing that they are most excited about when it comes to the future of sustainable cities. I'll start. Uh, sure, why not? And uh, I've never been accused of being a wallflower, so if you, if you give me time to talk, I'll talk. Uh, 
believe it or not, I mean, for me, a lot of it is going to be uh, sort of the sort of the concepts that JD and Tim touched on, which is the, the aesthetic of different uh, and not the sterile old school sort of uh, municipal developments that we've seen for generations that you're starting to see a real awareness of uh, not only the need for sustainability, but the benefits that come from it. Uh, and just being able to live in a vibrant community that's more in touch with nature, that's more uh, refreshing spiritually uh, and environmentally, I think is going to be, uh, I, I think we're opening the chapter on what's going to be a pretty interesting uh, coming generation of design uh, municipal, and municipal policies, so. Uh, so I'll go ahead and go. And I, I if, if people haven't seen it, people should take a look at what Amazon is proposing in Arlington. It's a, a unique building. And whenever I see something like that, I keep my fingers crossed that it actually does get built. I mean, that's always my concern. Um, and I would say the thing that I'm probably most interested in and excited about are things like, I'll just point to Tyson's Corner, where they're trying to take what has been a very automobile-focused um, you know, very concrete area and turning it into a walkable environment with incorporation of, you know, streetscapes and trees and stormwater management. And again, I kind of hold my breath and hope that that's something that does turn out exactly as we planned. So I'll leave it at that. Um, you know, so our, the world is rapidly urbanizing. You know, we, we are becoming an urban planet uh, so, you know, that has a lot of inherent challenges with it, but I, you know, I like to see it as a cup half full opportunity. So we are talking about being able to reach an increasing majority of the population in the place that they live uh, in terms of all of these visions that we we're talking about. Um, it, it makes things more possible in terms of kind of the concentration of what we are focusing on to just really address so many of our of our challenges today. So uh, you know that's that's what I'm optimistic about. Yeah, and I, I am as well. And I would just echo that um, our Bioflex Cities network is quite quite exciting in the sense that it's gaining traction. And we have 24 cities now, but we've probably talked to a hundred. Um, and there there is this sense that cities can and must be different kinds of places. If we're going to be an urban planet, we are. Um, we need to rethink the model of urban urbanization, the, the model of cities, and it's got to put nature at the center, not not a, not a, a sort of secondary role. We want to uh, and need to have that nature around us uh, all, all the time, immersive uh, nature. So that gives me hope. I'm excited by that. The other thing I'll just mention is that we, you know, we we uh, do a lot of work uh, telling the stories, wonderful stories of what people and organizations and cities are doing through short documentary films. We've got a bunch of those on our, our Bioflex Cities webpage. I'm just amazed and inspired by the, the many different things going on around the country and around the world and the just incredible people are, who are and organizations that are doing so many wonderful things. So that, that gives me a lot, of, a lot of hope for the future. Well, I want to thank each of our panelists so much. I thought that that was a really, really excellent discussion. Um, for everyone else, please check our schedule, which can be found at the ELPR website for the Zoom link to the next presentation and panel, which will start at 1110. Uh, we hope to see all of you there. And thank you again, panelists. That was really wonderful. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank, you. thank you all. Yeah, great. 
Thank you. It's great.